and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I have a special treat for you guys today. I've been wanting to do a review of the uh, album Reality of a Dreamer for a long time. I specifically wanted to do it around this time of year, and we'll get into that, but I didn't expect that I was going to be able to talk to the band themselves about this album. Here, here we have from Mythos, Bob Deeth and Paul Schmidt. How are you guys doing? Awesome. It's great to Good. be uh, talk to you, Scott. Yeah, nice thank you so nice much for for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to finally meet you guys after years of spending so much time with your music. Uh, I'll give you the quick background. I used to go to a New Age store in Phoenix when I lived there, and they used to have a display for some of their top albums, and you could just plug headphones in and listen to samples of the songs. And Reality of a Dreamer was one of those. And I listened to it. I immediately bought it took it home, fell in love with every single song. But it was right around this time of year that that happened. So for me, uh, we would play it at my family Thanksgiving, uh, which is in, in November for us here in the States. And then uh, for our Christmas party, it was an album that was on heavy rotation. So it's it to me, I'll listen to it all year, but it really kind of kicks in around this time of year where it, it it's like, I really want to hear this album. Um you guys have been at this for a long time, 25 years now. How does it feel to to still be working together and, and be a band that stayed together when so many bands can't make it past a couple of years? Well, I'll start with uh, you, Bob. Yeah, sure. I Paul's like my brother. So, I mean, it's like family, right? So, I mean, you know, we 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 when we started working together, it was kind of like literally turning the, fa the faucet on. Uh, that's the way our creative process has been. And it's been like that for for 25 years. So whenever we get together, it's always a, a joy to, and when it is, when it's a joy, it's uh, it, why would you stop doing that? So, uh, so we've, we've, uh, we always just wanted to create beautiful music. Uh, we never had any boundaries or uh genre per se and and just uh so you know as as you can hear from the music it it pulls from all sorts of genres uh all from all over the world and so we've really enjoyed that and of course um you know Paul is an accomplished uh classical acoustic guitar player and studied classically so having that sort of level of talent uh, in the group is it's really awesome oh absolutely yeah very very finely tuned player i will say how about you paul what, what how do you feel knowing that this has been a, such a huge part of your life well like bob said it's like family because i'm i met bob because i was uh in high school bob's younger brother paul another paul was uh like pretty much my best friend and uh we played music together and then bob's dad just really wanted Bob and I to get together, even though Bob was like quite a, he was like about six or seven years older than me, I think. Well, still is, of course, but he, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he uh, was in a band called Rhymes with Orange at that point, and they were actually doing quite well. And so, and then that, that kind of like stopped. And then Bob's dad really was pushing because Bob had classical and jazz training, and I had the, a lot of classical training. So Bob's dad was really pushing us to get together and we finally did. And it was like, yeah, it was like very synergistic for sure. And so we, it just like, they're like almost like my, you know, when I went to England, I hung out with Bob's mom all the time and stayed at her place and stuff. And like, I'm just, so it, it does feel like family for sure. 
Yeah. And I mean, certainly after all this time, you guys grow together as friends and musicians and really family. I mean, a band becomes a family, even if it's just two people. Yeah, absolutely. And it is nice that there's two of us. I've been in groups that are five or six. And uh, I have to say, managing uh, like that many people gets hard over time. So I, I think having a duo like this and um, and instead of sort of growing the band, we brought we we had the opportunity to bring in amazing guest um, performers uh, mm-hmm. over the years, and we've just had this incredible opportunity to work with some amazing uh, artists uh, who always bring the level of the project up. And so it, it's great for us because uh, you know we 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 have this core with Paul and me, and then we get to work with these amazing guest uh, guest artists as well. Yeah, yeah. Like for- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Well, like, for example, in, in Reality of a Dreamer, we had Mark Hensley working with us on that album as an engineer. And, and he did, I think he, he mixed it. And, you know, he's since won an Emmy, I think, for his, mm-hmm. his uh, he, he, he did the sound design for that show called Einstein, I think, um, that wow. Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Was it, in, do you know, Bob, was it an Emmy he won? I think it was an Emmy award yeah. he won for that. So super amazing to have like he was living in vancouver at the time he lives in la now but it was like we we've had a lot of people like him that have have been really like you know um helped us out a lot and been you know very talented people uh to uh, to we've worked with so and I have to say, the the production on all of your albums is top notch. And you guys really started doing this when New Age was was a category, but it wasn't a huge category. So it was kind of like you know when when heavy rock became a thing, engineers didn't really know how to mix it. They're like, I think this would work, or I think this would sound good. And you guys were at the beginning of this, but every single one of your albums from the first album on has had a fantastic sound to it. Uh, every song is rich and full, even if it's just two guitar tracks. Uh, it's it, it's so consistent from the beginning. How did you come to to get to that point so quickly? Well, it's in, it's interesting that you should say that because again, we've we've had some incredible people work with us, like Sean Pierce, for example, who's now. Uh, a, a top uh, film composer in this, in LA or uh, we, you know, we've always had really, really good people around us as well. And um, it was interesting at the beginning because Paul and I really didn't set out to uh, create mythos. We actually were, were trying to do some demos for film and television because we thought that, uh, you know, we, we might be able to do some, uh, some scoring. Um, and uh, so we were trying to put some demos together and it was only then when we started creating pieces as these projects that uh, we realized, oh man, there's there's something here, <laughs> there's something here, right? And uh, um, and it was quite funny because Paul said, well, we, you know, because it was there was a few things on the radio that were starting to happen in this area, like uh, uh, Robert Miles. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, it was like the um, and and it, it, there was the like, instrumental tracks getting onto hit radio, and we're like, oh man, and so. We put one of our, our, our first EP out and sh- sure enough, uh, uh, the November became a, a hit in Canada. It was like, what? There's no lyrics. <laughs> yeah. There's no lyrics, right? So, um, but yeah, so we, we really were trying to create these sort of lush, uh, s- soundscapes in a sense as well. So the, the production, that's part of the reason why the production has that, 
sort of um, lush sound to it is as we we were setting out at the beginning. And so um, because that worked so well, we, we've sort of stayed with that. And um, I know a lot of new producers really going for lo-fi and stuff like that. And we've just stayed consistent with our sound. And I, I think p- people like that. So. And what surprised me when you guys put some remastered songs on the, the, the new, you know, 25th anniversary album, I thought, why are you touching these? These sound so great as they are. And then I listened to them and I'm like, okay, you've somehow found a way to take it up a notch. I don't know how you did it, but you somehow found a way to make them even sonically better than they already were. Uh, was it, was it a little bit nerve wracking saying, how can we make this better picking some of these songs? Well, actually on the mastering side, um, it, it can, just remember, we were we were recording back in the late '90s and early 2000s, and as you said, the production uh, this this type of music was sort of in its infancy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we were everybody was producing for you know uh, CDs and cassettes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so remastering actually gave us an opportunity to look at new formats. And so this, it, the, the, the remastering works far much, uh, far better with the streaming services and, and because just the way that it's set up. So it gave us a real opportunity to sort of bring it up to the, where things are right now sonically. And I think that's, that's part of the reason we did it because we want it to sound as good as it can in the different formats. So when you guys were first recording, like your first EP, was that recorded on analog? Well, like actually, real? no, it was actually recorded that this was right back at the beginning. I don't know if you remember the sort of the change uh, from having to go into the big studios with the two inch tape to uh, uh, ADATs. And mm-hmm. so we wow. had actually I'd recorded a, a record with my rock band uh, on ADATs and uh, the big Alanis Morissette. Jagged Little Pill was recorded on blackface ADAT. So everyone was starting to use those. And so it was, it was digital on tape. So it was digital tape, but right. it was still yeah. digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really hard to work with back in the day. Uh, Paul will remember this too. I mean, you know, you push, you push record and you have to wait a few seconds for all the tapes to lock up. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we were bringing samples up, it would take like three or four minutes for every sample to come oh, up. Yeah. And, and and all the the programs we had like logic and and things like that were clunky as hell we're working in dos and it was it was really hard but we did we did mix it analog so we 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 mixed it on an analog board but it was uh, we were recording digitally yeah i, I specifically remember-, remember using logic uh one of the earlier versions of logic which is an amazing program and it always has been but back then it was a i think it was like the manual <laughs> the instruction manual on how to use it was translated from German because I think it's origin was a yeah. German program mm-hmm. maybe Magic. still is yeah. originally and it was a really not a good translation so it was really hard to understand so we mm-hmm. were just it was really a huge learning curve. It was actually hilarious how bad the translation was actually. And what was really kind of interesting because we, we used a Mackie board to mix, uh, to mix the record and it, it was, it wasn't automated. So it, so we had to do it manually uh, analog, but, uh, the Mackie manual was incredible, you know, and then the yeah. logic manual was terrible. So <laughs> it was just yeah, it was, these inconsistencies was quite interesting. Yeah. Logic, it was amazing. It's, it's always been amazing, but it was, I, I mean, nowadays I'm sure the manuals like, like really understandable but back i think they are back then it was just i remember i couldn't it was it was a lot of just testing and 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 trying different things with it and we we did get it but it was just like a 
it was a learning curve for sure. And it was our first, uh, you know, recording program we ever used, I think. So mm-hmm. it was like, we just didn't have any background in that. So thank yeah. God for Mark tough. Hensley. Mark Hensley was our, our wizard with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And if I remember right, uh, every time that you daisy chain an additional ADAT, you lose a track, right? So you, you didn't get eight tracks per ADAT. You really got seven except for the master. Uh, no, I think you got the eight tracks with the BRC. It was just the length of time. Like we had three ADATs running oh, and yeah. oh man, it was just like, you know, the first one locks up and the second one locks up and the third locks up. It was like, yeah. oh, you're killing me. Right. But yeah. uh, it's so, it's so funny now. Cause like samples come up instantly. Uh, you know, everything's in the box in the computer. It's, um, it, it's, it's a, Oh, it's it's such a joy working in the digital world now. It's so much easier. But yeah, it's nothing. It, it's something to be said about having to dig for everything. You, you know, you, you you we had to dig Paul and I for everything back then. So <laughs> it, it it is uh, one of those things where when you have to work harder for it, you get a better result a lot of times. And I think it's so easy to to become complacent in. I'll just use this sample because I know it. I've got all these other ones I can use, but here's this one. I'm comfortable with it. it it'll, it'll work. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I, I struggle with that myself. In fact, I was, I really fought transferring to digital for a long time because I was an analog mixer and uh, I, I'm used to having to, you know, do 10 different things with 10 different fingers and, and try and make it work before automated faders. But once I made that transition, I thought, oh, that I just wasted the last two years of my life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, but you guys have always gotten a great sound in the studio. You also have had incredible artwork on your albums. Uh, every one of them is just uh, stunning, especially Purity. That one's my favorite. It's just, I want to mm-hmm. walk into that world and be there mm-hmm. and, and experience what it's got to offer. Uh, how did you guys hook up with, uh, with Gil Bravel? Well, it, do you mind if I tell the story, Paul? Is that I'll right? go for it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I just seem to be talking more, so you can jump in. Um, <laughs> We when um, when we, we we put out our our EP introspection and uh, at the time I was uh, doing a lot of work uh, shopping artists around the world and I was in Meet M uh, and uh, we met a guy uh, named uh, Medi Amadi from X.25 in the Bay Area and he fell in love with our music and and he actually put the EP out in the states before Higher Octave mm-hmm. and he was actually at a at a party and he saw like an art book <clears throat> and it was uh, Gil Bravel. And he, he suddenly went, you know, he had this epiphany. He said, this, this is mythos. Like this is, this, this is a match. And there's that. And so he was the one who contacted, um, uh, Brevel for us and, and sort of set it up. And then of course, when he took his catalog to higher octave, they fell in love with, with this match. And so all of our records have had uh, Gil Bravel artwork, and it's just the most stunning artwork. If if I, I encourage all of your listeners to just go, go to his website gilbravel.com and just just see some see all of his work. And he doesn't just do surrealistic paintings; he does sculptures, he does all sorts of stuff. So it, we've had this amazing uh, relationship with Gil for this whole time, and uh, we're just so grateful. Um, and the interesting thing is, Reality of a Dreamer is actually the name of the work <laughs> oh yeah so it's actually uh it's it, it went beyond that for reality of a dreamer because that piece that art is called reality of a dreamer we got special permission from gil to use that because it just seemed like such a perfect match for the album so anyone want to add anything paul 
Um, yeah, like, um, well, stuff. I've always been a huge fan ever since I, you know, but we, we first found out about, you know, having it on our first, uh, major release with, with higher octave was, I guess the first one that they actually got the license, one of Bruvel's works that was with the mythos release. And, and, um, yeah, it's been just incredible to have, uh, such a great match with our album artwork. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's amazing that every one of our albums since then, because our first couple of albums we did it, uh, we did um, before Higher Octave didn't have Bruvel yet, mm-hmm. but everyone since then has had um, Bruvel, and it's just like yeah, it's just it's it's this amazing amazing consistency, um, and it really it's like you know ties our our albums together almost uh, having having his artwork on, on all of them. And uh, pretty much most of them have the, a, a woman. Uh, um, um, and then we use a lot of, you know, male vocals. So it, that, that ties it in really well too. It does. And and I really go yeah. back and forth with the, the concept of, I hate that, that music needs a visual representation because it really should be the music itself. But I also understand to get people to listen to the music, you need to have something eye-catching to make them go, oh, what is this? And, and it worked because when I went into that new age store and I'm looking at the you know 12 or 16 different album covers that they had on that machine, yours was the one that stood out most. A lot of them were just a color wash or, you know, a little uh, angel in, in red with a blue background, just very simplistic. Uh, we kind of threw this together. And yours was like, these guys take their music seriously. They really went in and, and did something, uh, you know, valuable here. And while I, I and I think it, it had an impact because yours was the first one I wanted to listen to. So as much as I hate it, it is so vital to have that. Well, I sure, I sure miss the listening yeah. post days. Uh, <laughs> I oh, mean, yeah. we, we used to, I mean, it, the industry's changed so much over the last 25 years, but we, we were so fortunate back, back in the day that, uh, you know, Higher Octave was able to get us on these in-store listening posts and in-store play, um, opportunities right out of the gate. And yeah, it just makes such a difference. As you said, if people have a chance to hear it, then they, as they, they can, fall in love with it and, and then buy it, you know, and then it's, it, so that, that really helped drive sales and, and get people interested. And, and you're right. It, I mean, people do, it, we are visual human beings. And so I, I do feel that uh, having that initial visual is, is important, especially if it matches the music. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen album covers where you're like, Oh, that looks cool. And then you listen to it and it's like, what? <laughs> that doesn't match the yeah. music. Right. And so that's why it's so, we're so lucky to have Ravel because it, it does, it's just such a great match. Absolutely. Yeah, and listening posts have been huge for us, were, I mean, they won't really have them anymore, but mm-hmm. like, for example, um, when we were with Higher Octave, uh, when they released any, uh, one of our, each of our albums they released, they would, I think, do a deal with Tower Records, where in every single Tower Records store in the U.S., we would get a month on a listening post or something. Wow. And then sometimes it was even two months. And, and then that led to other successes. Like for example, um, reality of a dreamer had a track has a track called Requiem, which was used in the 2000 
Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. Wow. Um, so that was our, probably our biggest placement we've ever had with our music. Um, we've had, some, you know, we, we've had some TV and film stuff, but nothing like no blockbuster films or anything huge. Um, but that's probably the most, the biggest thing. And that was, I remember the story. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Bob, but I think the story with that was the VP of Victoria's Secret was in New York in a Tower Records store and heard our album on a listening post and then wanted to use it for the fashion show. Mm-hmm. So that's how we actually got that placement uh, from a from a listening post. And the other thing about listening posts is like our music sounds really good in headphones, I think, that our genre of music sounds better in headphones. So it's like you're you're getting people to listen to it right away in headphones. And and it just was yeah, that was probably one of our earliest best marketing uh things we, we we had going for us i would say i that's i love stories like that i love when things just happen organically you know um and you're right those listening posts were great but i will agree with the headphones there is some music that it sounds better in speakers like i think rock and roll a lot of times just sounds better when it's filling the room and i think new I age think music so. sounds better when it's like you're you're in it you're inside it and especially with the, yeah. the reverbs that you guys use i think so much of that gets lost in a bigger room mm-hmm you know, uh, maybe in the theater it would be okay. But but as a personal listener, like if I were to put it on my stereo and have the speakers, I think sonically it would sound better if it was right here where I could feel right. more immersed in it. Right. Because yeah. I think that's the thing with new age music. A lot of it is being is that immersion experience, feeling like you're inside the song, at least for me. And uh, I started out listening to guys like Patrick O'Hearn, who mm-hmm. uh, had played with Missing Persons and then went on, on his own and started doing some new age albums. And, and that's how I found the genre. Uh, and then you guys were probably the second or third band that I found. And, and just immediately I was like, these guys are amazing. And I just bought everything that you had. I'm like, I, got, I, <laughs> Thank I you. want more, you know. Um, but uh, we were talking before the show started. You you told me something interesting about Pandora. So I want to tell uh, my American audience that uh, if you guys have wanted to interact with Mythos on Pandora, uh, they would love to interact with you, but they can't. Why can't you guys interact on Pandora? You want the lawyer to take this one, Paul? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> well, it's one of these things where different jurisdictions have different rules uh, in terms of what streaming services can do and how they pay royalties and their 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 structure. And uh, unfortunately, Pandora's model doesn't work in the Canadian environment. And so, Spotify is fine, Apple Music's fine, you know, others Deezer are fine, but Pandora doesn't work here so they they don't they can't comply with our our rules around uh what how they pay their royalties and all of that stuff so uh so unfortunately uh, we can't even log in to check to see and i know we've uh we've had significant uh uh you know followings on pandora so it's really frustrating for paul and me because we'd love to be able to interact the way we do with our spotify playlist fans and things like that and or apple music but yeah pandora it, it's a bit frustrating for us i must say I had, and I had no idea. So thank you for, for letting me know. And so for you guys in America, uh, if you guys have Pandora, but you also have Spotify, uh, maybe go to Spotify and that might be, uh, might be the place. Uh, interestingly on reality of a dreamer, uh, according to, to the Wikipedia for you guys, you were nominated for a West Coast music award in the category of techno. 
I know, right? Uh, that I know. I, I had to laugh because I I don't know how this would. Maybe that was just the closest category they had. They didn't have a new age category at the time. Yeah, yeah. Or was it called it, electronic or something? Yeah, electronic well, techno. Yeah, the, I think right. the first one we were nominated uh, was actually no joke. It was rap slash electronic. <laughs> Do you remember that, Paul? Oh. And I that was the so, first, yeah. yeah and uh, at, we were, it was weird because there was a band I was representing called the Rascals who were like a very heavy rap band who were like in the same category as me and Paul. And we were laughing so hard because, you know, we're all buddies, but just no match genre, like not even cl- like about as far away as you can get. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's sometimes that's, that's one of the problems when you when you do music that isn't in a uh, pigeonhole like that you can't pigeonhole our music easily i mean new age is a is a catch-all i guess you would say but you know we always considered ourselves um you know electroacoustic or Mm -hmm. you know people like to label us or label artists but uh, we've we've never we've always tried to defy labels if we can um and just create ethereal beautiful music that uh doesn't have any boundaries and is go across genre and we just try to pull on everything so um but you know new age whatever what do you, whatever you call it as long as you listen to us we don't care <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and really it kind of goes back to the concept of the album artwork it's it's a way to you know cert- draw in at least a, a certain category of fans that are looking for maybe ambient music or instrumental mm-hmm. music or mm-hmm. something like that and i and i'm the same i hate labels too especially now that they're like so subdivided and then subdivided after that that it's just how do you find anything you want anymore <laughs> You know, well, yeah, with 60,000 tracks being released every day on Spotify. Yeah. yeah. How do you find anything these days? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm curious how you guys go about writing together. Um, it, because I, I write most of my stuff alone. So I, I don't have anyone to play off of, which is a blessing and a, and a curse at the same time. But with you guys, does one of you come up with an idea and you present it to the other one and you develop it together? Or how do you do that, Paul? Um, yeah, like a lot of it, exactly like, like you said, like a lot of the times, like, um, it'll start with, uh, either a, for me, a guitar riff or from Bob, a, a piano melody and, and we'll develop it from there. I mean that, that one track, for example, Planinata we have, which is our, I think our biggest track on Spotify has got the most streams. It It was from hearing i was at the library in the world music section and that there was a bulgarian folk melody and i heard it and i was like it was a solo vocal it's like oh that's so cool and then i brought it to bob and he's like yeah let's make a song of it. and we built a you know a track around that so that was that one was kind of different but usually it's just like uh you know one of us has an idea and sometimes in our more recent i guess stuff we've done together we've done it more distance, you know, with COVID and everything. And so when well, we're recording that album with COVID and so that was, that would be like more like Bob would write, do a, a, tr- uh, a you know, a composition that needed maybe a guitar melody and some kind of melody in the B section or something or something else. And I would add to it, you know, and, um, but at first, for like in our earlier days, we would actually sit together with a guitar and the piano and an actual Bob's like um, Bob had a has a still has a baby grand piano, 
So we would, um, that's how we would write very organically in the earlier days. Yeah. 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 I think uh, totally right, Paul. I, I think from a writing point of view, that be- some of the best stuff we've done is just sitting with a piano and an acoustic yeah. guitar and, you know, yes, there's electronic so. bits and yes, there's the soaring vocals and the orchestration and all of that stuff. But at the core, we've always tried to have, you know, Core, key melodic uh, development with our core instruments, which is acoustic piano and acoustic guitar. And sometimes it goes totally a different direction and that's fine. Right. But, uh, uh, but that's, uh, that's, I think that's where the magic has always been is just Paul and me sitting down with our, our acoustic instruments and creating. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's changed, but you can always change a piano out for a different sound later. If you, if you yeah. think that it serves the song better, but to have that foundation, the instruments that you're most comfortable with and that you guys work well with each other with, and it makes the most sense. But mm-hmm. one question that I, I really like to ask artists and, and I, I'd like to, to see what both of you think. Uh, when do you call a song done? Start <laughs> with you, Bob. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there's an artist who ever puts a song out and goes, ah, oh, I should have changed that part. <laughs> <laughs> right. I still, it's really hard when you hear, I, I still hear pieces that we've done like 20 years ago. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I, I kind of brought that bit up a little bit there or here or there. So um, is it ever done? Probably not. It's like any artist, but I think <clears throat> you can definitely get a feeling when every, every, all the parts start coalescing and you're like, okay, okay, this is feeling good. And, uh, all, all the bits are where they need to be. Uh, there's definitely, and, and the thing too is what's really great is Paul and I have a really good relationship with <clears throat> going, you know, going through the mixes, you know, Paul listening and have, oh, what about this? So we always bounce stuff back and forth mm-hmm. so that, uh, and it was really great too when we had people like Sean Pierce, who is a third party mixing it. And then Paul and I could sit down with Sean. Or, or Mark Hensley or others. Um, I've been doing more of the mixing in the last decade or so. Uh, I feel more com- comfortable doing that, having learned from these professionals. Sure. Uh, but uh, we learned a lot. But but being able to work with people, and I always found with the mixing engineers we work with, is they always brought something to the table, like some it, bringing it up another level. It was I, we haven't worked with anybody who hasn't done that. So. It's uh, we usually get pretty excited. I think Paul, remember we'd go into the Sean Pierce mixes, and it was just like, whoa, <laughs> awesome! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sean Pierce was amazing. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. Did Sean Pierce work with us in on Purity and Eternity? Yeah, uh, and just those two, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was so Sean Pierce is like Bob was saying before. He's now a very successful film composer. You know, doing Netflix series and stuff. But um, he was, he's also, a, he's a Berkeley trained jazz musician and a, like a real technical studio whiz guy, amazing mixer. So um, back when he was still living in Vancouver, we used to, we got him for those two albums to mix them. And he didn't just mix, like he, he would, um, you know, he would add a couple beats and stuff. And if he felt like it was like, and he just, he was like, really amazing to have because he was incredibly technically proficient and very creative in the way he mixed and he brought our stuff yeah definitely to another level it was amazing you know yeah i'm always a now i'm always aspiring to the sean pierce mix that's that's my goal can i make it can i make it to sean or not you know (laughs) right 
Well, yeah. uh, so, uh, Paul, when do you think a song is done? Um, I guess like when there's, you know, our usual format is a section, B section, a section, B section bridge, and then a section, B section out. So I guess for me, one, one good thing is, is when, when you, when you write the song with just the acoustic instruments, you're not bogged down by the technology. So you can really focus on, on the melodies and the harmony, uh, you know, of the music and the composition itself. So that's like our first stage. And once we have like a, the harmony and the enough melodies for the A section, B section and the bridge, then we're ready to go record it. And then, then it becomes a, a, a question of production. Like, like adding some vocals, the bass, uh, you know, Renee Wurst is amazing. Mm. He's, we've used him for bass. Yes. And um, his partner, Jennifer Scott, and one of the better jazz singers in Canada, as well as Christine Duncan and some mm. other, we've had some other amazing singers. Um, my, my friend, John Bottomley, who's a Canadian folk singer, sang on a couple of our tracks, and that was a huge treat. So um, then... Once the production feels, I guess it feels full enough. Sometimes we've actually had cases where we put too much stuff in mm -hmm. a track and there's just too many tracks mm -hmm. and it's too busy. And that happened, I think, for example, with, um, didn't that happen with that Ascent track, Bob? Totally. Well, it remember like, we did, we did two variations of it. One with lyrics, one without, and it was just so much. It was just like, uh, yeah. it was way too and much. I and we started track. Yeah. <laughs> but but when it was mixed and the end I was like there's just yeah. man there's too much you can't focus yeah. on one thing there's yeah. just too much going on we just we overproduced that track I think yeah yeah no. and it well, just kind of lost some of its magic I still like it but it didn't it didn't like when we were writing and at first recording that one I was like this is going to be so amazing for us and then we finished producing it we got it mixed and I'm like Oh, it's, 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 there's the too much on the it. The demo, the demo was better. The demo was better. Yeah, yeah. I think it yeah. was, it was better because it wasn't so busy. We didn't try yeah, to just stuff yeah. so much stuff into it. Yeah, I know. So I know. that was a disappointment for me because I thought that track could have been huge for us and it, yeah. it never really was as big as I thought it should have been. And well, especially I think with the video, I mean, we've got Neil Blondkamp who's the guy who, who uh, mm. you talk about ascent, right? I mean, we got Neil Blomkamp, yeah. who is the uh, uh, the director for you know District Six, District Nine, District and, and uh, oh, wow. yeah. you know he it was one of his first. Um, he he just was in Vancouver trying to do CGI stuff, and he did a video for us. And so you know we yeah we had a yeah we had a pr pretty good. Uh, we thought this was a really big track for us, and you're right, it it, it might have been better to have backed off a little bit. And uh, just let the let it breathe. And sometimes yeah. that's that's the trick is letting pieces breathe and and not yeah. overproducing them. Yeah. Well, that's the double edged yeah. sword with this style of music, right? Because if you take like you know Bob, when you were in your band, and you take okay, we have guitar, bass, drums, keys, vocals, and and it's very simple. You know, maybe mm -hmm. we'll add a couple of layers of synths or or whatever. But when you get into music that's really more of an open canvas. And there are no restrictions. It's so tempting to go. What if we just did this? Oh, you know what? Mm -hmm. We could try. And and you're not removing anything to leave room for those other things. It it does get tend to get very overproduced. I've done that myself, and it's it's hard to produce yourself and say, 
I need to have the discipline to know not when to stop, but when to remove something else to leave room for this other thing that's more important, or I think serve as a song better. Those are tough choices to make sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why having a third party mixer or someone like Sean or Mark, it, it, it helps because fresh ears at that point can be really helpful. In the case yeah. of Ascent, though, it was sort of the other way around. I, I think uh, the, the, the mix that we did uh, probably could have been the album mix uh, in hindsight. Uh, but, you know, hindsight's 2020, mm. right? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I want to ask you guys about a couple of specific songs uh, that were pre-Reality of a Dreamer that are a couple of my favorites. If you recall, uh, from from the album Purity, Icarus is such an amazing journey. And I think that's the thing about your music is that your songs are songs, but they're journeys. I feel like I'm going on a ride with you with each song. And that's one of the things that really attracts me to your music. It's not just a bunch of stuff that happened. It's an experience. And Icarus... Um, it just, it builds and it builds and it gets more intense with the piano with every pass. Just such a beautiful thing. But I think that's one where I would have been tempted had I written that song to just keep adding things and adding things and, mm-hmm. and making it ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it had to at some point peak. So, you know, I let it just peak and then that was that. And yeah. So I think with Icarus, uh, th- th- it's really wild because sometimes with songs, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was it was one of these pieces they actually this is no joke a high school drum line did a uh a, an arrangement of it you know? really <laughs> no joke right wow which is really cool i mean you, you know you, you just you'd never know where where pieces can go and and you know who you're going to uh who you're going to uh, inspire and and so it it's one of these things that pieces have a life of their own and i think Icarus is probably one of those that was never intended. I mean, I, I think Paul and I, there's other pieces that were bigger when they first came out. And then some like Planinata or Icarus or Surrender or some others, um, sort of in, in the digital world, uh, some, some people, you know, fell in love with it and started putting it on their own videos. And then all of a sudden it's shooting up in the, in the playlists. And so it's, it, it is. It can be very organic in in the streaming world, so that's one of those ones where it was a bit, I think, surprising for Paul and I how it it had this long life. That uh, when it started out, it was it's much bigger now than when it started out, which is really it's interesting how how songs have a life of their own. Well, it's it's got a great energy to it for one, and then every pass, you're like, okay, what's the piano going to do on the next <laughs> one? You know, you just you're just like got that anticipation and curiosity, and you have to go to the next pass, and then when it's over, you just want to hear it again. You know, even just from the beginning, just that little melody and that just the, you know, kind of, I feel the clock ticking back and forth. I feel the metronome and I, I, you just can't help but, but to be drawn in. But that I think for me is the pull for you guys, because I feel like that with all of your songs, every one of them, uh, there's, there's a simplicity to them and there's a beauty in that simplicity. No matter how much you layer it, there's, you can feel the core foundation of the song and that doesn't get lost, which I think with a lot of artists, they tend to just bury the mm. the foundation of the song in all the other things that they're trying to show off. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I think the piano, guitar, bass, uh, uh, basis of the, the the piece and the melodic development is so important because that is the anchor for everything. And then yeah. it's sort of like when you when you write for a, a vocalist, everything should be supporting the vocal. And I think that's the way we look at all the other instrumentation, unless it becomes a melodic part, of course, like Jennifer or, or Christine. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it's like I don't think Paul and I have ever lost sight of how important that sort of core melodic base is to to everything. Right. And it definitely works for your style. Uh, absolutely. The other song I wanted to ask you about, another one of my favorites. In fact, when when your band name pops into my head, the first song that I go to is The Odyssey from the album Mythos. Uh, this is such it, it's it's dark without being dark. There's like it, it rides that edge of of having it be like this really melodramatic song. But it also doesn't feel melodramatic at the same time. What do you remember about putting this one together? Paul, you want to take this one? <laughs> to be honest, I don't. I'm just, let me just, uh, I don't remember too much about that one. I'm just, uh, I want to just refresh. Um, you remember, Bob, remember, you remember Scott? This was recording that one. This was uh, you know twenty five years ago for some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah. So like a lifetime ago. And the and the thing is is interesting too is that Paul and I uh, have rarely played live. Uh, so it, it one of the things we asked Higher Octave early on was, do you want us to tour? We're you know we're happy to tour if you want us. No, no, we got listening posts. We got uh, we're we're a mail order company. We're fine. Uh, don't worry about it. It's all good. We got you. And so we're like, oh, okay, and. All right. Um, so, you know, we did some TV shows and we did a few, you know, on, on air things and s- some live concerts. Uh, but th- the thing is, when you don't play the pieces like a lot of bands do over and over again, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things. You produce it, you, you release it and then you move on to the next one. Right. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, interesting position to be in. You know? and, and a lot of songs when they're when they don't have like a, a chorus to tie into the title of the song, like I'll I'll go back and look at, at songs that I've written and go, the "Shattered Room." What was that? Like the, <laughs> I, I know I wrote it and I know I liked it, but I can't remember which song that is. You know, in, in conjunction to some of my other songs, so it does. Yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, this, this album, though, Reality of a Dreamer, one thing that you guys had mentioned, Renee, on, on bass, and I love a fretless bass. I am a sucker oh, yeah. for a good fretless bass, and it is all over this album. Uh, was that a choice that you guys made, or was that a choice that he comes in and says, what if I played fretless on this? No, 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 no. It, Renee, well, Renee and I go way back, because he used to be in a jazz band called Skywalk back in the day. This amazing uh, jazz fusion band in the uh, 70s and 80s, and um, I was sort of in awe of this band and sort of in awe of Renee, uh, as a bass player. So, um, and he actually came to my high school and, uh, did some tutoring and stuff. And so just hearing him play. And so just being able to get him on the album is like, uh, it was just such a honor, really. And, um, so, and he was at that time, you know, and probably still is one of the top session players in, in, in Vancouver. And so we were really lucky to get him. But just when you hear the fretless, it just works so well with what we're doing and it's so melodic. And so mm-hmm. if you see here, sometimes uh, like in November, for example, he does a bass solo in the bridge, uh, you know, and we just let him go. And, and uh, as time went on, we did a lot more writing for Renee uh, bass lines, which I think he appreciated because I think we put a little bit more on him early on to sort of, you know, develop the bass lines and things like that but uh yeah just uh j- there's something about the fretless bass that just matches what we're doing so well and just it's so smooth and melodic mm. and uh paul you want to add to that at all paul what's that do you have any thoughts on renee <laughs> oh i mean yeah he's amazing 
Um, he's just got this soul, you know, out at his playing. Um, and it kind of matches his personality because he's kind of an easygoing guy, really friendly, nice guy. And his playing is just so warm and just beautiful. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a, he's, he's a gem to have for sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, mm-hmm. and even on reality of the dreamer from the opening track, uh, alchemy, it, mm-hmm. it, he shines right off the bat, and mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely does add a warmth because as as we all know, as working in the the mixing side of things, uh, working with these kinds of sounds, it can be very difficult in the digital world to give them that warmth, and I think that the the fretless really helps bring out some of the warmth in the music as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, Alchemy is another Definitely. one of my favorite songs from you guys. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it just sets such a great tone for the album overall. Uh, yeah, it, it, it just says you're going to take a journey with this album, and and every song on it is just fantastic. Um, my last question for you guys is: so uh, you're still together? You're still working together? Can we expect another album? <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, one of the one of the challenges, uh, Scott, is. Uh, is is when we put stuff out we we want to make sure that we're adding to the story right and we want to make sure that we're relevant and that we're doing stuff that uh that people really want to get so so we've been sort of trying to be very picky and careful about putting things out to make sure we have that sort of level of uh of production and level of writing so i i know i'm, I'm really anx- i'm anxious to to continue uh doing more and uh but it's gotta it's gotta be right and the other thing too is you know, we don't want to do uh, more of the same. You know, we, we yeah. just, uh, I, I think that's one of the challenges we have is that we do have a sound. We have a a, a type of, of a piece that we've done, like the type of development and production that we've done over the years. I, I want to make sure that, that when we, we do something new that, that we're actually adding to the story. And so it gets harder as it goes on. I mean, one of the things about reality of a dreamer, which is interesting, is that it uh, it's an interesting story because when... High Rock did put out Mythos, the first album. It was actually a, it was actually two albums in one. So they did, they were able to pick the best of two, our two first releases, independent releases and make Mythos. And that ended up being a big, big album for us, the biggest album for us. So when we delivered Reality of a Dreamer, it was tough because, you know, your sophomore album, I mean, there's all these expectations after the first one. And at first, at first, actually, Higher Octave was like, eh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> we nearly didn't get it released, right? Wow. And yeah, I know, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was one of these things where it was there was a bit of humming and hawing. And uh yeah. you know, we put we put it all together, we put the artwork together, we sent it down and we we worked with uh, you know, Dan Celine and, and the the team down there and and you know, it, it took a bit for them to 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 fall in love but it's it's always difficult following up yeah. uh something like you know three or four years of work and now you got a year to do the next one right so uh so that was a real challenge for us and so uh, when we do new music i want to make sure paul and i want to make sure that uh that we are adding to the story and i i think that's that's our challenge now after 25 years well, and, and yeah, I think that, it's, you, you think about a band, you know, uh, well, you, you had all those years to develop those songs under no pressure. And now you're under a time crunch. You have people with expectations of you. You're looking at a band like Guns N' Roses. They had years to make Appetite for Destruction perfect. And then it comes out. It's a huge success. And now the record company is like, all right, go in the studio and record another album. And they're like, well, wait a minute. This took <laughs> us years, you know, to make this. Yeah, Th- That is a huge amount of pressure. Uh, so I, I understand some hesitation there. Uh, what do you think, Paul? 
I think the same, like, I think if we do do some new stuff, um, just really, it's, we, we really have to dig deep and do something like that is still mythos, but different because we've done so much of our genre already. So we're reaching a point where if we just kind of do more tracks, I mean, the last album we did, there was one track that actually was really quite different because it used electric guitar and I think we maybe used electric guitar before once in the past, but, and Bob, uh, his son wrote that track with us Mm -hmm. and, um, it turned out really amazing. I was like, wow, this is, this is different. It's like, it's, it's, it's still mythos, but it's got a really fresh kind of uh, sound to it. So it'd have to be something, we'd have to find something new like that, that would just, and you know, we'd have to keep the piano and the, the nylon string guitar um, to keep it mythos and the vocals, but it would just have to be different. And this is, I think, something that's really difficult for artists that have had like multiple albums out of the same genre. Um, you know, cause I just don't, I just wouldn't want people to listen to it and go, well, it's, it's, it sounds kind of like their other stuff, but it's maybe not quite as good as, you know, cause like you were saying, like, you know, with the old stuff, we, we, back then we, we did have a lot more time. We spent a lot more time. I mean, we were, we were more it was more like our job back then whereas now it's 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 sort of just a part-time thing for us and we you know we're doing other stuff in our lives so it would have to be we'd have to really to use the expression bob you have always used we'd have to really dig deep and bob you've always used that expression for the melodies and harmonies that we we mm-hmm. come up with but i think in this case it would be also the direction we go and the sound and the, we, we'd have mm-hmm. to really like, you know, find uh, something that's still mythos, but that is, is, is different. It's, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's, um, you, you see our dilemma, the, Scott, the you see our dilemma. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you probably was, feel that too. You, I you, was you. on a uh, live stream podcast last night for the band uh, Van Halen. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we were talking about is that fans uh, tend to get this is what I want the band to be as mm-hmm. as a fan. So anything that so if you just keep producing the same thing, you'll please certain fans, and other bands, other fans will be like, well, they're not growing. And then if you do something different, like let's say you made it slightly jazzier version uh, on your next album, then you'll have the the fans that are like, oh, I really like this. This is an exciting new direction. You'll have the other fans that are like, well, I'm a diehard fan from the beginning, and uh, I don't I, I don't like this new thing because it's not what I want them to be. It's such a difficult exactly. thing, you know. I but I think whatever you guys choose to do, whether you whether you ever put out anything else or, or not. If you stick true to yourselves, if you're happy with the music that you're creating, it will have an audience because people will feel that joy. If you're trying to force anything, mm-hmm. I think it comes out in the music. Mm-hmm. I, think I think that's that's so true. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so funny you should say that because I think right back to the beginning when I had this sort of toxic ending to my rock band experience uh, and with the rock industry and part of the reason why it was so great getting into mythos was because of that. So we didn't set out to write for an industry or write for a genre or write for radio or write for anybody except ourselves. And I think that's ultimately why I connected with so many people Mm -hmm. is because we, we actually were creating from a space of, you know, we're just, 
doing, we just want to create something beautiful. <laughs> That's yeah. our yeah, only criteria, freedom, really. Right? That was our criteria, freedom. right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was like a freedom, I think, yeah. back then. It freed you know, us, we yeah. Had, that yeah. we just, when you get it more established, you just don't have that anymore. Because um, you've got, you know, fans that have... Expectations. Yeah, yeah you got, yeah. And, right. oh, Scott, if you want, I could just quickly talk about I did. <laughs> I did quickly refresh the Odyssey, so I do oh. rem- now. I do remember mm-hmm. about that one. That one started as a a guitar tremolo. Tremolo is a technique where you're playing your thumb and then thumb and then these three fingers. Let me just get my hand here. So over and over, thumbs going up and down the strings, and these these three fingers are going on the. It started off as a, a guitar little tremolo piece I wrote. That's very italian i think mm-hmm. it sounds like uh to me i remember when i was writing it i i thought oh this is very italian sounding um and so that was the what we started with with that track and then we added i think bob added a b section that had a bunch of uh choral samples and stuff and so that's that's how that one came about mm-hmm. and um yeah, and then Alchemy was, yeah, that's that's actually one of my favorites, too. I just remember when, so that one has sort of more of a guitar melody in the A section, and then the B section, it's got that really amazing piano melody. Yeah. And I remember when we mixed, when I, Mark Hensley, I believe, mixed that one, because he mixed that album, and he put this reverb on the piano, and it was just, when I first heard it, I was like, that is the most beautiful reverb i've ever heard yes because it's just this da, dun, 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 da, da, and it just mm-hmm. just gives it this huge it's a huge open space reverb and that really made that track come alive and just made it incredible and i think that's why it was the first track on the album mm-hmm. I, i'm pretty sure it was the first yep. track on the album i think yeah. I think maybe Higher Octave wanted it that way because that was, yeah. I think, their yeah. choice for the first track. It made it very haunting, in a sense. Yeah, yeah which I thought was, was really it's cool. Almost like yeah. a, uh, it's almost like there was, I remember there was one reverb in, in the one of the reverb units used to have Bob called Underwater Cathedral, and I oh, love right. that one. They always had these names for the... <laughs> Weird names. still do, yeah. I guess. Oh, yeah. And so, and then Alchemy's on, on Spotify, it's our third most streamed track. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely always been one of my favorite as well. Well, and I guess, what, I guess, Pete, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say what, what I love about that, uh, Paul, going off of what you're saying about the simplicity of the piano, the guitar is, is simple too. I mean, is there's a nice quick double pick at the beginning and it, they're both very simple pieces with some nice background, but it, and it has, it just brings an elegance to the song, but that reverb really brings out the piano. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that that is magical to your music is is just the way it all blends together and it feels like it's one sound even though it's different instruments it's just blended so well. The other yeah, thing when that I was- first heard that oh. reverb, I was like, when it was first, we first got the mix that Mark did. I don't know if you were the same, Bob, but I was like, oh, that's amazing. I was just, yeah. it's probably one of the m- most like huge amazing moments of of listening to a first mix i've had with our stuff i think mm-hmm. was that reverb on the piano yeah. the other the interesting thing about this record too which i thought was neat is because we always used electronic beats but we brought uh, frank baker in who's a a drummer but he 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 ended up adding uh like 
drum elements, live drum elements. So if you hear the hi-hat work, it's really interesting, oh, especially in alcohol. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, it's, it, it's something that would be nearly impossible. Well, I mean, a good programmer could do it, but man, there's nothing like, like a live hi, hi-hat work with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, the and di- so yes. I think the I dynamics think, yeah. are, are definitely there on the hi-hat. Yeah. So, and that For and other sure. percussive bits that, uh, that Frank was able to add, especially to alchemy. I think, uh, it's always been that combination of, of electronic and, and, um, organic together is, is really what we're about. And so we were experimenting on trying to get electronic elements and marry them with the, the live element as well. So it's, uh, it's always been a bit of an experiment in progress and we'll, we'll keep hopefully experimenting for years to come. I'm sure. Yeah, and I, think, I think reality of a dreamer is the only album where we had an actual drum kit and drummer we've had on, on, you know, and I, I'm on purity and eternity. We had a lot of uh, percussion. Yeah. Pepe Danza. Uh, that was really cool. Percussion yeah. guy come in, mm-hmm. but this is the only album I think Bob, mm-hmm. right. Where we yep. had an actual yeah. drum kit, a drum set, mm-hmm. um, being played and it really worked i think was it maybe mark hensley who knew frank baker and recommended him to us i can't remember did you know him bob no i knew i knew frank him? mark knew frank yeah he was he was uh, oh you knew him okay yeah, yeah. don't you remember his dad frank baker he used to have the the restaurant in west van <laughs> oh yeah that's <laughs> it was right frank baker jr anyway nice. right. we, we digress <laughs> yeah well, uh, I can't thank you guys enough for taking some time out to to talk with me. Uh, in the next episode, uh, I'll be doing the review of Reality of the Dreamer. It's it's such a beautiful album. I mean, I love all your guys' albums, but this is the one that I just, it's like the first one I keep going back to because it was my my initiation to you guys, and it just has such a special place in my heart. I want to thank you guys for creating the beautiful music that you've done. Whatever you choose to do from here, uh, I'll I'll take light in knowing that anything that you put out you're doing because it comes from that foundation that you believe that this is, you know, the music that you should be putting out and regardless of what direction it goes. And if you guys become a polka band, I'll be there to listen to it. (laughs) Thanks Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. You take care and and keep in touch and uh, just keep doing what you do. And and, uh, I, I wish for your great continued success. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. Bye.